Hello and welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Neil Phillips and I'm joined today by Vicky Hurd. Hello Vicky. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the show. Before we go any further, can you explain who you are and what you do? Sure. Yeah, no, great to be here. Yes, I'm the author of a new book called Rebugging the Planet, The Remarkable Things That Insects and Other Invertebrates Do and Why We Need to Love Them More. But also, as my day job, I'm Head of Sustainable Farming at Sustain, the Alliance for Better Food and Farming. So I do a lot of lobbying and farm policy work, and that's what I do a lot of the time. Oh, brilliant. We like to start with our recent wildlife sightings, and as the guests, you get to go first. So any interesting sightings recently? I did have a new one on me. I was in a wonderful organic orchard last weekend in Durham, in fact, and saw a canestrini harvestman spider. And I haven't spotted one before. It was very beautiful, lots of golden golden parts to it, and happily got it identified. And it, it was very beautiful and obviously wonderful in an orchard because it's going to do a lot of pest control. Yeah, and if you'd like to know about harvestmen, there's an episode coming up very soon on those. So, uh... Oh, I will listen out for that. Yeah, it's a, it's a good one, that. Yeah, my wildlife sightings, even though we're talking bugs today, I'm going to have to mention a couple of birds. Good job, Vic's not here. <laughs> I saw yesterday, I was out doing a management meeting with some people at Doors Hall Nature Reserve. Lots of exciting plans there, but I might talk about that at a later date. We were walking along and we had our resident ornithologist with us and I saw a bird of prey shoot behind some trees and went, oh, kestrel, no, sparrowhawk, no, hobby. And Ooh. it looped around, and it even, and this it was beautiful evening sun. At first, it landed in the tree, and then it looped around with perfect light behind it. And I did have my camera in my hand, so I'm quite happy. And that's the second one I've seen there in a week because we had a home education class there, and they all got to see one as well. And a couple of the parents there were a bit of a birders, so they were very that's happy exciting. to see that. Yeah, that's brilliant. Mm. I think it's youngsters moving south, I suspect. And we've also had the usual buzzards, but also quite a lot of red kites, and I saw two, possibly three circling around this evening before I came home so that was really nice but I can't not mention some sort of insects in yes. this podcast. <laughs> of course good <laughs> so I went to specifically knowing I'll be recording mm. this podcast today I went to a big patch of ivy flower and I recommend going to a big patch of ivy flower this time of year and there was all sorts on there solitary wasps social wasps and bees which are also wasps I suppose <laughs> lots of wasps but the weirdest thing was the seven spot ladybirds that seemed to be feeding on the nectar yeah, interesting, that. Interesting, yeah. That's a bit of an odd one, isn't it? Yeah. I yeah. shall have to ask Helen Roy what she thinks of that. Yeah, always look for your ivy flowers at this time of year, as you say, and make sure you don't dig them out because they're such an important food source right now. Yeah, and I'll just put it out there. Most of the time, they do not strangle the tree, despite what some people say. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Get the ivy myths crushed, yes. We're here to talk about your book and the topic of your book. Could you tell us what your book's all about? Yes. Well, as, I said, as it's called, re I got the idea of that from the rewilding and rebirding books that are out there, getting the wildlife back into our lives. And I thought, well, not many people have large estates or farms to rewild, but everybody sees wildlife all the time, even in their houses, let alone when they step out the door. So I thought it'd be a good way to get people to understand the role that wildlife has in their lives, because most people don't really think about the invertebrates. Apart from the bees, they often know about bees, but also what they can do to help them to help us. So I thought, you know, we can rebug our houses, our gardens, we can rebug our lives and our habits. You know, there's all sorts of things we can do that I cover in the book, but also learning about how brilliant they are 
and thinking about how you talk about bugs to other people, particularly young people, because one of the things I do want people to do is help with rebugging attitudes to bugs. Because a lot of people think bugs are awful, dirty, they'll sting you, they'll bite you, they're a nuisance, and so on and so forth. And actually, there's a very, very tiny, tiny percentage of bugs that are really a nuisance. Most of them are actually really useful or neutral, but an awful lot of them are hugely useful to us. We wouldn't be on this planet without them. So I talk about what they do for us. I talk about what you can do for them and why and explore some of the issues and also some of the incredible bugs out there. That was the point of the book, really. And I hope people have learned a bit from it. Yeah, you've kind of covered the next question I was going to ask, which was what inspired you to write this book? Yeah, it was also, no, there are other things. The rewilding movement inspired me because I think it's very important for people to be able to see what we're trying to save and understand it. And I think, you know, actually experiencing it is really important. But I also was inspired by the horrific statistics on loss of invertebrates. The data is quite clear that we're having some crashes in populations, in diversity of bugs. Obviously, there's lots of uh, more data needed. There's always more data needed. And, you know, some bugs are doing all right, particularly the generalists. But there are really scary statistics and climate change and the catastrophic harm to ecosystems like rivers and soils all having a huge impact on the bugs. So that terrifies me. As, as an entomologist in my background, I, I did train a bit as an entomologist many years ago before I became a campaigner. It frightened the hell out of me, so I thought that. But I also think things like BBC Springwatch and other things like organisations doing Bee Watch and getting citizen science, people are more interested, more people understand it. So I wanted to build on that and get them to be ambassadors and more and more people to understand the smaller creatures around us. And I think that is there is growing interest and concern. So well, three things, really. The scary statistics, the inspiring rewilding and uh, the interest that is growing out there for, for bugs of all sorts. Mm. Yeah, I think you're correct there. I do find there is, like bees, 10 years ago, if you said, oh, everyone would be worried about bees, I wouldn't have believed you. You'd be like, oh, no, everyone sees bees are things that sting them and, oh, maybe they make a bit of honey. But people are starting to get that. It's really changed, doesn't it? Yeah. I think it was partly because there was a lot of concern about the neonicotinoid insecticides and mm. a lot of organisations like Friends of the Earth and Bug Life and the Wildlife Trust all run campaigns to, to raise awareness of why you know why you need to tell your MP and your government to to not allow these products to be used, but also getting people to love them because they started to do bee watch. You know, you'd identify a bee in your garden and send it off, and helps the scientists understand what's going on. So yeah, I think it, it, bees have got more love, but I think it's growing as well. I think more people are thinking about the other invertebrates as well. Yeah, I think the next one, I think we've got to push is earthworms. I think people would, you know, absolutely, absolutely. Talk talk about keynote species. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And they're, they're actually really mm. amazing creatures. Mm. I mean, they're not maybe the most mm. aesthetically pleasing, shall we say. I mean, mm. at least bees have got that lovely yellow and black yeah. colour scheme going and are not all wiggly. Yeah, I think they're incredible, though. I mean, people, if they saw them up close, they'd probably be quite impressed mm. with the bristles and the, the sheer engineering involved in an earthworm. I think they'd probably be quite impressed. Oh, That's yeah. what also impressed me when I was writing the book. The engineering, the design, the, the communication, the organisational skills. These, these have got it in spades and they've had it for thousands millions of years before us they really know how to do all these things very well and we're, we're just beginning to learn from them you know how to design buildings how to design materials to be you know strong and light and all sorts of ways we can learn from the bugs as well but earthworms yeah 
superorganisms. That's a nice, neat segue mm-hmm. into the just discussing some of the chapters in your book because uh, you mm-hmm. you have all these wonderful as you go through the book the what would you call them fact boxes I suppose the, yes. the little grey boxes yeah. where you talk about stuff like that on top mm-hmm. of the main text which some mm-hmm. of those are absolutely fascinating and I I, mm-hmm. I consider myself quite knowledgeable about such things but there are some nice neat bits in that I didn't know it's brilliant. Yeah, it's a huge palette to draw on. You know, yeah. you could draw, write millions of books really because they're so huge in number. So what are the chapters, what are the topics in your book? Yeah, well, I sort of start looking at why they're so important to us, all the things that they do for us in terms of, you know, all the services they provide. I don't like to think of them as service providers, but they do do amazing things for us. And then I go on to talk about how rebugging can really help, you know, rebugging spaces, green spaces, parks, and also rebugging attitudes. So when you talk about bugs to particularly young children, as I said, you know, don't immediately say that don't touch it don't let it near you actually try and be positive about it and say oh that's interesting isn't it when a child comes up you with a with a handful of earthworms or is near some small bees or whatever just don't immediately cry out that that's a terrible thing try and have a different attitude towards it and talk to to them about to mm-hmm. your family and friends about how great bugs are you can become a bug ambassador it's really important and then I the later chapters I talk about what you can do in terms of your lifestyle in terms of what you eat and what you wear because those things because they have such a huge impact on the land that's where the invertebrates live so it's going to have a huge impact on the invertebrates and it's really staggering you can make just small changes to your diet and make a big difference to the invertebrates and you can make changes to what you wear ideally not changing what you wear too as often as people do not buying new clothes all the time looking at things like cotton it's really staggering how harmful the cotton industry is but it can be better you can get organic cotton but also reusing fabrics and stuff is really important and then one of my final chapters is around the politics of it the power and inequality both of which cause huge problems for the invertebrates which we could talk about if you want but it it's sort of I try and not make it too heavy, but it's important for people to recognise that the power of the big, big chemical industries and big ag industries, we need as a, as a community, as a movement, to be pushing back against that power because that's the only thing that can stop the, the weakening of rules that protect invertebrates and the birds and everything else. We need to take some of that power back and uh, make sure our politicians are protecting the invertebrates. So I talk about that and, and uh, various things like that. And then there's uh, the last chapter is a whole load of useful organisations and tips and ideas about how to, to do what you can. I mean, all the way through, there's tips and ideas of what you can do if you've got no time at all, if you've got a little bit of time, and if you've got a bit more time. And some of the things I talk about are very much about what you can do in your garden or in your local local green spaces. Any green space can be a refuge for a bug. That is certainly true. You've just mentioned that one of the chapters is mm. all about, in fact, all the way through the book, there's lots of tips mm. of what you can do to help rebug the planet or help our insects. So would you like to give some examples for the listeners? Yeah, yes, of course. I mean, one of the things, because there is quite a lot you can do, and, you know, there's lots of things all the way through. You don't have to do everything all at once, obviously. What I suggest to people is they have a bit of a, a rebugging plan with three different areas. The first area is what you can do in your space, like in your house or in your garden. And in your garden, there's so many things you can do that really help the bugs like having a, a wood pile that would be great for the beetles mowing less or not at all making sure you've got spaces for wildflowers or weeds if you want to call them that but weeds are amazingly important for a lot of bugs providing a, a 3d environment for the invertebrates to find refuge in and nest and eat in but also flowering plants ideally throughout the year so there's lots of look there's tips in there of what plants are good to do and a pond so the first thing is about your space and also the space around you for instance your local parks getting involved in that 
The second part of your bugging plan can be about what you buy and what you wear and what you eat. And there's loads of ideas in the book about what you can do that will really help. Things like where you buy from, trying to buy fresh produce rather than really processed produce. Because processed produce, it looks really cheap, but it's actually cheap calories and not very good for you and not very good for the bugs because it relies very heavily on very cheap monoculture production of very cheap uh, materials for these junk foods. So trying to get fresh where you can. And I recognise everybody's, you know, big cost of living crisis, but we can all do a bit if you can buy organic or from farmers you know are using better processes on their farm. So that's fantastic. Even if you can do it a bit, that's going to make a big difference. And what you wear, the most sustainable clothes you wear is what you're wearing right now, really. <laughs> Try and reuse, recycle, that kind of thing. So that's the second point. And then the third point, if you can, get a bit political with a small p. Get involved with the local Friends of the Park or a group that campaigns for the local authority to, to do things differently, not use sprays on the local green spaces. And if you can, you know, get involved with national campaigns. They're really gearing up. We've got an attack on nature. You've probably seen that. So join Bug Life, Friends of the Earth, Wildlife Trust, anybody you know is doing something for the bugs because they need your support. You know, even if you can't join them financially, you can join them in terms of giving your voice and they do really easy actions and things. And often it can help find you new friends and local groups that are really fun to be with. So it's just a bit of a plan, three areas, whatever you can do. Fantastic. Oh, that's really good. Whenever people say, oh, what can I do to help? I always, of course, go straight to pond because yes, that's just my, my nature. Any, any mm. Even a foot across little dish. When we had that drought, my pond dried out, but I didn't want to put tap water in it. So I put two little dishes in my garden one in a shadier and one in a warmer spot and every night there was three or four frogs sitting Fantastic. around them so yeah. you know and that's just the frogs unfortunately lots of slugs well, as well slugs <laughs> are amazingly <laughs> important in the garden they're, they they're are. such an important recycler of plant material the majority of them don't eat your plants they eat dead material and if you've got leopard slugs wow you're really winning because they oh, will eat the proper yeah. slugs <laughs> you know and they're beautiful i would say that but so they are beautiful but i started a pond in lockdown and it was the container from the bottom of the fridge you know those square containers you put your vegetables in and i put oh, yeah. that in and i had everything coming in to drink so now i've built a bigger one and it's going to get bigger again it's irresistible isn't it <laughs> yeah i got the first damselfly and dragonfly in my garden when i put that little pond in i haven't had any since so they were probably just checking it out and deciding it wasn't big enough but i did that's the first time i've ever seen them in my garden if it's a running joke on this podcast and just generally on my social media that i'm the essex recorder and i've had dragonflies in my garden i'm up to about six or seven species but I've never had <laughs> one intro, any interest in my pond, oh. let alone find a nymph or larva in there. Plenty of ponds I've been involved on other sites of lots of Brilliant. dragonflies around. Brilliant. Now, we did touch on the campaigning mm. and politics sides mm. of things. So some of the stuff you put in your book, I thought was, I mean, it's going to be easier for people mm. to read it. So go buy the book. It's a paperback as well. It's not too expensive. So could you perhaps sort of, it's hard to simplify mm. down into five minutes of talking, sort of the sort of problems we're up against and what we can do about it. It's really important for people to recognise that they do have power. I think people often feel that, you know, I can't go and talk to my MP, I, I have no power with local authorities, I can't, you know, writing a letter won't make any difference or an email, but it will, it really will. It does make a difference, and especially if you join with others. And also just going to see your MP on your own, it can be quite powerful, or getting them to your local park or your, your you know, own garden, you know, even, because then they will see that there's a constituency that really cares 
because they get so many that don't come to them. So the most important thing is doing that. But also, if you do join with organisations like your local wildlife trust or local Friends of the Earth group or do a bug life beeline project, the bug life beelines is very exciting, join with others to create corridors of green space for the bugs to travel through. All those things can help you to create the pressure on your elected representatives at local authority or at national level to do the right thing. And we know the pressure is so strong from the other side, those producing agrochemicals, those wanting to produce monocultures, to force farmers to do things in extremely unsustainable ways. The pressure is so strong. So the more that you can join with organisations to, to support them doing things differently and through your pound, of course, and what you buy is absolutely critical. And, you know, I, I do give ideas about how to get involved in local action and how to think about it and writing letters and things like that. There's lots of advice on the web as well about how to do that in ways that will really make a difference. And it all does make a difference. So, you know, I think right now we've got a real problem with the kind of policies that are coming out from this government that are really potentially rolling back really, really important regulations that protect nature. It's being called an attack on nature. You can Google it and join with those organisations in writing to your MP and making your voice heard. Absolutely critical, very critical for the invertebrates because they often get neglected. So, yeah, please do get involved if you can. We'll come back to the various stories because if anyone that's listened to the last podcast, that was recorded before the full details came out, or as they came out, actually. I was recording it. The RSPB, Wildlife Trust and National Trust have all declared it an attack on nature. That's organisations with, it's 800,000 from the Wildlife Trust, just over a million for the RSPB, and it's something like three or four million for the National Trust. It's millions, yeah. It really runs millions, yeah. These are all three organisations that are always very, should we say, conservative. With... They're very careful. They're very careful usually, yeah. Very careful, because yeah. they have to be. And they yeah. weren't holding back at all on this. And there's a very good mm-hmm. reason they have. And we're going to come on to the ELM scheme, I think, at the end. I think it's probably a good one. But a couple of things in the book I like to... You mentioned Back mm-hmm. from the Brink, which we've oh, had yeah. the coordinator yes. of on the show. And it is is—it's true, invertebrates do just get overlooked, don't they, with all mm-hmm. the protections. And mm-hmm. not maybe... They're, I think. Do you think it's going the right direction? I feel like there's more interest in invertebrate conservation from both the NGOs and the public. Absolutely, I do. I do feel that. And I I think some of those organisations have, you know, should take the credit, you know, like Bug Life, really getting people to sort of get it, really, you know, the importance of bugs and and how they're critical parts of the food chain, if nothing else. You know, you lose those, you lose the birds and the mammals and the bats, anything else you like. And you lose the trees and a lot of the flowers if you lose the invertebrates. So I think they've done a lot to raise that profile of the bugs and not just the insects and not just the bees i think there's and and that back from the brink being some of those were critical species i think the ladybird spider was one of them wasn't it and some moths yeah so fantastic to see that and fantastic to see the growing interest and and younger interest as well young people were really interested in the invertebrate community also because they're closer to it it's easier for them they can see things that we don't often see because they're a bit close to the ground so yeah we should nurture that and build on it not not to get them to get the fear as we did when we were younger. Yeah, that's the only reason I have kids, because I have mm. a pair of two pairs of younger that's eyes to spot things yeah, for me. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> you can go on bug, bug hunts with them, doing bug hunts with children. Absolutely fantastic. Oh, yeah. We've already done a few of those. I was very lucky. I got invited to go and help with relocation of field crickets. And there's a podcast on that as well, actually. Episode, I should have all the episodes <laughs> memorised. It's episode... 40 ish. Yeah, or you need a poster on your wall. <laughs> you can, that would be easy. Oh, yeah. It's going to be increasingly long. This is going to be episode 70. Wow. Three, I think, or two. Mm. So we're doing all right. It is nice mm. to see 
invertebrates yes. getting a little bit more credit and like you say there's a few young birders but a lot of them one one movement mm-hmm. i find is helping a little bit is pan listing is getting people and have you come across pan listing i don't think i have actually no so you know people keep a bird list pan listing is everything ah so you tick everything you find and it's helping with you mm. know briar fights and things that most people look overlook yeah. and it gets more records for them i'm a sort of an all-round naturalist anyway so the pan list is for me is keeping a record of what i have seen because i can't remember yeah, everything i've seen that sounds great uh, so the whole ecology everybody needs to understand how it's a system it's not single species they've all got to work together and that's that's what sounds really sensible a lot of people are anti-tick lists and train spotting type thing but you know i always think if it gets people engaged yeah. Yeah. go for it yeah I like to think macro photography is helping as well a little bit, you know, because it, it's drawing people in mm. and people that look at the pictures go, oh, jumping spiders are quite cute, actually. That's the brilliant thing. I do talk about my smartphone insect joy because mm. just having a smartphone the last few years has made it so much easier to see the beauty, like the spider, yeah. jumping spider, one I keep finding in my garden. And you can't see that unless you actually photograph it and then zoom in. And you could do that even with fairly basic smartphones. And that's a really good way to spread the word as well. You can show people the, the bugs you've seen, even from a distance, because you can zoom in and show how beautiful they are. So, so that's a brilliant thing. But macro photography, also hugely important as well. But everybody can do the photographs now with their smartphone. Yeah. You might not be matching a £1,000 camera, no. but I'll tell you what, if you were to stick it on Twitter, no one's going to be Absolutely. able to tell the difference I've taken, some, I've taken some crackers with my smartphone, and I am not a photographer, but they look amazing, really. Oh, some brilliant. wonderful ones of crab spiders catching prey. Oh, yeah. Everybody's got crab spiders if they've got a garden, and they catch prey with their two, four legs, and it looks really dramatic. And you might think, oh, it's, that's awful, but it's actually it's like the Serengeti in your garden. You know, it's just brilliant. And I've got some great photographs of that. And they can be bright yellow and, yes, and white and, and they, they pink can, and They all can sorts. match their flower plant that they're on. They're able to change colour. Yeah, and, they just, and they're very still as well. That's the important thing in a way. Easy to photograph because they stay very still and they don't have a web. Although when I try and get a close-up, they usually just duck under the flower uh, for me. You're too noisy. <laughs> or too vibration, too much vibration. Probably fieldcraft failure with yeah. me usually. I'm sort of a, a bit rusty. And then, I mean, there you go. We just touched on just on spiders. We've gone through yes, <laughs> the cool things you find in your garden. Yes. I have to mention distinguished jumping spider. I mean, 10 years ago, would that spider have stopped a massive theme park being built? I mean, it hasn't stopped it yet, but it it's, has stalled it for a long time yeah it's really important yeah. that's that's so exciting that that worked yeah and bug life are doing a lot of that but loads of local people as well oh yeah absolutely brilliant campaign communities there to mm. stop it happening yeah well contrast that to tilbury power station which is just down the road mm. from me which had hornet robber fly and loads mm. of other rare species and one of the densest reptile populations but unfortunately that time only bug life really got involved mm. and they weren't enough on their own but i think people have learned mm. they and others have saved canvey wick right. and mm. the other distinguished jumping spider site west Farrock marshes which literally is just a pile of ash <laughs> from an old power station but it's amazing. It's got marsh hellebarines, mm. it's got pantaloon bees, wow. and it's got distinguished jumping spider. It just shows so, how invertebrates can really recolonize, help yeah. the recolonize. And they bring the seeds, they bring the microbes yeah. that will help soil form. They're really important transporters of a lot of things that will help a, a devastated site become wild again. Yeah. Really important part of the system. You touched in the book, don't you? Bringing in the fungi for the yes, soil. Yes, exactly. And... and earthworms and other soil creatures on their skin and in their in their stomachs, they'll be carrying an awful lot of really critical microbiota to re-inject a new soil environment with those critical fungi and microbes. Yeah, so they're transporters. Yeah, that's just one of the things I picked up from that book. Brilliant stuff. 
We'll finish on elms because mm. that is extremely topical at the it moment. Is, it a, is. There was lots of rumours and people had elms meetings cancelled, didn't they? So they thought the scheme might have been dropped. But could you quickly explain what Elms is? Because you can do it much better than I can, I'm sure. And then what, what the situation is now. Yes, Elms, the Environmental Land Management Schemes, or Elms for short, was the design for England. It's different in the other three nations, but in England, the design of a new scheme to replace the old Common Agricultural Policy Support Schemes, the subsidies that we had in, in England. And the Elms were designed to be paying farmers and land managers for public goods. So the nature climate change mitigation all sorts of wonderful public goods that won't be paid for by the market would be paid for by payments that are basic taxpayers but things that you know we really need to see on the farmed land across the country and so elms was there being designed for the last five years with incredible amounts of meetings between farmers other stakeholders all the environmental groups and i was there in, in the meetings from the beginning so we've been working on this for years there's going to be very sort of good set of, of grants that farmers will be able to access at a, a basic and a middle level and a much more advanced level. So it's really exciting to think about how it could really help farmers go on their transition towards agroecological farming that would protect nature, protect food security, because we need nature for food security, but protect our wider environment as well and really restore nature, etc., etc. Loads of different good ideas. It was complex, it's going too slow, and all sorts of other reasons means that it's been under attack for quite a long time. And farmers are very worried because they're losing their basic payment schemes, but the ELM scheme isn't quite in place to replace that. And it's not really there to replace it, but in terms of income, they really need to see some income. When we've got the cost of living crisis, their input costs are going through the roof, energy costs, etc. So it's a really tricky time. And what happened last weekend was that there were big rumours that Elms was being ditched and we're going back to the old style of area-based payments, just income payments, with no real delivery of public goods, the, the environmental goods that we really need. But I think the rumours were overblown. The Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs have actually sort of said, sort of said, I say, because I'm not 100% sure, but they've said we're keeping Elms we're still going down that route, but we're doing a review. And a good review could look at, you know, where there are gaps, where farmers are falling through the gap, whether they can do things faster. We know they need more money and we know they need to be more ambitious and they need to monitor things better. So the things that a review could do usefully, but what we don't want to see is any pause or any backtracking. What we do want to see is support for farmers from other budgets, and that's available. There are availability of other budgets for emergencies, as outlined in the Agriculture Act of 2020. So, yes, support farmers, but don't delay elms, because we need it for, for all sorts of reasons, not least to protect the environment on which we depend to produce our food. And that's the soil, the air, the water, the natural systems, the pollinators, the pest predators, everything. It's really, really vital to be protecting the farmed environment. So the last week has been a frenzy of, of trying to find out what's going on, finding out, as you say, our meetings are being cancelled, but that was a bit of a red herring because they were going to be cancelled and they're redoing their set of meetings. Anyway, it's all gone, gone a bit complicated, but there are other things that are threatening nature that isn't to do with elms. It's to do with European retained legislation, like the Habitats Directive and changing in planning rules to allow zones which don't have protections for nature or protections even for workers, I don't know. There's real threats ahead, which is why we've got the attack on nature campaigning going on. It's, it's broad and we still need to nail what Elms is going to do. So it needs to be ambitious and have the right budget. So yeah, as I said, a lot going on and really support those organisations that have got, got actions and keep, a, keep an eye out for 
what we need to do next. Oh, that's a nice summary for that. Thank you very much. So yeah, basically everything I said in the last episode came true and unfortunately looks like it's mm. going to happen and uh, possibly worse things as well. Mm. We've really got to get active, particularly in the 38 places where they're thinking of having these zones where planning regulations are being entirely relaxed. How horrific will that be for the nature in those areas you know the, the bitty bits of nature not just the reserves and nature everywhere i don't want to scaremonger or anything but we must remember that the mm. government has the power of compulsory purchase so in theory in theory and I'm, i stress the in theory yes. bit nowhere is safe you never know so people need to be yeah out in the streets if they need to be at the times mm. yeah yes. we, we may, it, may, it may come to that to keep an eye on rspb england's and wildlife trust twitter accounts mm. is quite good at the moment and i'll put a link so in in lieu of giving me likes and sending me coffees or whatever please don't do any of that just go on to rsb website or just email your mp directly they can if you go for the rsb website and do it they have a thing you'll be able to find it quite easily i'll put a link to say you're not happy with the way things are going and wildlife protection is being removed they may fob you off and say oh it'll be fine we had the environment secretary yesterday i think it was on Twitter going, oh, everything's fine. Now, none of this is true. Look what we did with the Environment Bill. And if you listen to the last episode, the Environment Bill involved legalising sewage into our rivers. So, And the Environment Bill isn't safe. The targets aren't safe. And a lot of the money for the Environment Bill actions was from the Agriculture Elms budget. So, yeah. Yes. Awful lot Lovely. of... Um, yeah, all connected and yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even better. Yeah, and the Environment Bill targets are wishy-washy, would you say? Mm, <laughs> yes, yeah, I mean, gosh. Yeah. And, and we need... unambitious was another word I heard, which was, I think was a very kind way mm. of putting it. Yes, yeah. And this is our home, as well as the wildlife's home. You know, we should all be able to speak to our MPs about it and, and get a proper response and a solid action. Like you mm. say, it's not just nature under threat here. If all the soil washes away, if our water becomes polluted, it will be in trouble, serious trouble. Yeah, they need to sort themselves out and quickly and reassure everyone. And uh, that that could yes. also account for other things, but we don't cover those topics on this show. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I, th- I think yeah. that's probably mm. a good place to start wrapping up mm. there. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you uh, glad you asked me on. Rebugging the planet is something everybody can do a bit bit off. So hopefully, if people buy the book, they can see. Where can people buy the book? Any good bookshop. Chelsea Green are the publishers, so you can get it on their website. They did have a discount. I'm not sure it's still going, but have a look at the Chelsea Green UK website, and you might be able to get a discount. And a lot of bookshops have it. Waterstones. So. Yeah, and many independent ones. I like to mention independent ones, yes. but if we can. And there is a there is an audible version. Oh, fortunately, it's audible, but you can get a yeah recorded version. Oh, that's lovely. Uh, where can people find you online on social media? I do an awful lot of tweeting. Hey. <laughs> Just to warn you, I'm on at Vicky Hird, V I C K I H I R D, and Instagram the same. I do have a website www.rebuggingtheplanet.org, but I, Twitter is a good way to to find me. So I'm always on it. Brilliant. I have been for far too long, <laughs> but it's it's useful. Though. You find great entomologists on there as well as great farmers and campaigners. So I always say that, there's, there's, like everywhere mm. in life, there's a lot of annoying and idiotic people, mm. but it's worth putting up with because oh. yeah, there's yeah. plenty of plenty. You've made so many good contacts mm. on there, and you exactly. Need, you need exactly. to say ID'd. You can usually find somebody, mm. or somebody yeah. will tag the person that can for you. So it's brilliant for that. Yeah, yeah, and I do a lot of my photographs on there. They're not they're not professional at all but i look put them both on twitter and instagram and encouraging other people to do the same thing show how beautiful they are but do you know what i want to end on something quite positive so what is your favorite invertebrate 
Is oh, it the one it's right on the one. spot? It's a really tricky one. I I usually say ants because that's what oh, stopped me off when I was about six. And they are such keystone species, absolutely critical everywhere. And they're so amazing at communicating, amazing at social organisation, amazing at building. I mean, they're quite extraordinary. And I talk about the wood ant in the book from Cairngorms. Mm. They take the wood ant out of the wood and the wood falls apart. You know, the forest falls apart. You know, they're that important. And uh, it's so I, I would say the ant. Yeah. But I've got a giraffe neck weevil tattoo. And that's oh, a whole other story. Good choice. <laughs> they're they're, yeah. they're funky, funky looking beasts, they are giraffe necks. They are, yeah. I thought I'd have something completely unique from yeah, Madagascar. So I'm going to have a joint halfway up the neck. <laughs> There's weird yes, figures to fight, on. to fight, yes. But then there are so many weird things in the invertebrate world. They're oh, yeah. like nothing else, aren't they? Well, that's what... Just extraordinary. Well, I say it many times on this show, which is birds are boring. But they're not boring. They're just boring compared <laughs> to the invertebrates. Because, you know, a bird yes. is bird-shaped, might have long legs, might, you know, they've all got wings, mm. all, you know, might have a long it's neck. It's a pretty standard format, yeah. isn't yeah. it, really, compared to invertebrates. I think invertebrates incredible. When they're so similar to each other, they can't tell without <laughs> genetics who's related to who. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That says, oh, whereas yes. if the insects, okay, you get convergent evolution there too, but you know, you compare yeah. an ant to a yeah. Goliath beetle or a, you know, yeah. and I'm a big fan of wood ants yeah. myself, so that was a good choice. <laughs> oh, great, yeah. great, yeah. Well, yeah. we'll finish it there, Vicky. I think that's a, a good spot to end. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for asking me. No, great. You're most welcome. It's been great to have. So, and I should add that I arranged Vicky to come on about a year ago, and I've been so disorganised and various things coming up that I've only just got round to fine. doing it. So, it's fine. So, thank you for always, your patience. I've always got time to talk bugs. No problem. Brilliant. Okay. Well, that's it for me, guys. Please do go and email your MP if you can. It'd be much appreciated, and we can make a difference that way. So, uh, see you next time. Thank you for listening to the UK Wildlife Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast service you use. You can follow us on Twitter at UK Wildlife Pod, or one word. Or on Instagram at UK Wildlife Podcast. And like us on our Facebook page, UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can also post to the UK Wildlife Podcast community group. If you would like to share your wildlife news or sightings with us on Instagram or Twitter, then please tag us in the post and use the hashtag UKWildlifePodcast. And you can now support us through our Buy Me A Coffee account, which you can find at buymeacoffee.com forward slash UKWildlifePod, where you can give us a one-off bit of support or join our membership scheme. Head there to find out more. This episode was edited by Neil Phillips and music is by Oscar Henderson. You can find him on Instagram at oscar.creates.